Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. In response to some listener feedback, I'm changing up the formats a little bit of the interview episodes. If you want an extended summary of the episode, you can listen to the Sunday weekly summaries and programming notes episodes. And going forward, the episode summaries in front of each episode are going to be considerably shorter. Just some key points uh, about what I might have learned or some interesting highlights from each episode. Programming notes for the week of June 5th, 2022. As just noted, this is the second week of doing the extended summaries only in these programming notes episodes. The reason for that, again, is the summaries were often hitting 10 plus minutes for each episode, and I got some feedback that it was just getting to be too much. It was adding you know, so much time to these interview episodes. So there are extended summaries in these programming notes episodes, and then there are much shorter kind of lead in bottom line up fronts to the episodes themselves. So we've got two awesome interviews and a mesh musings this week. I'm going to start sounding like a broken record until I do see some people moving on this. If you want to see more and better content so you can make better decisions about your data mesh journey, you need to be supporting the community in some way or another. You need to be making active content requests, join the Patreon so we can show you know, people that content is desired, et cetera. You need to be the change you want to see because right now people are, are not sure what content people want to, to get delivered to them. So they aren't sure if they're going to spend a whole lot of time on content that's not really going to be useful to anybody. So exactly like what we're seeing for data consumers in data mesh, data consumers and data producers need to communicate. As a potential content consumer, you need to go and talk to people that might create content and tell them specifically what you want. So now on to the episodes for this week. On Monday, it'll be episode number 85, the move from legacy to leader in data and analytics, with which is an interview with Emmanuel Schweitzer at EMD Electronics. A wide-ranging conversation sharing a lot of insights about EMD Electronics' data maturity journey, including what they're doing with Data Mesh. There is a lot of really interesting questions that came up from it. Some of it's not answers. A lot of it is, hey, is this the right approach? Is this something that we should be looking at? The summary in, in this specific programming notes episode was long enough. I couldn't even include the numbered list of the questions and kind of thoughts that I had from it. So that is the bottom line up front for that actual episode. Tuesday, episode number 86, data product documentation, a primer, which is Mesh Musings 18. It's 
discussion on the fact that we need to get past the idea that technical documentation is what is needed to drive actual self-serve information consumption. We do need that technical documentation information with data products, but people need to be able to understand what the data product is actually about. What is the information it's sharing, not how was the data produced? On Friday, it'll be episode 87, choosing tech for the now and future and potential woes of decentralizing data teams, which is an interview with Jesse Anderson, who's a consultant with uh, the Big Data Institute. So this interview with Jesse is about how to choose technologies to serve your current and long-term needs, as well as his specific concerns about the challenges with decentralizing data teams and what he's seen when people haven't really had good intentionality around it. I don't know that I fully agree with a lot of what he said, but I think it's, it's a useful perspective. So with that, let's go ahead and jump to the extended summaries for the episodes this week. Extended summary for episode 85, the move from legacy to leader in data and analytics, interview with Emmanuel Schweitzer. So in this episode, I interviewed Emmanuel, who's the data officer for EMD Electronics. For Emmanuel, EMD's data mesh journey is not that typical in that they're still getting their arms around centralizing data in a constructive way. So it's not somebody who's already kind of moved towards that data lake structure. It was previously that their data was locked away in the domains. So they're starting their data mesh or decentralization journey by centralizing data in a certain sense. Juanis Rosiers mentioned this as something that they were doing at, at or they had done at DPG Media as well in their early journey. They had to kind of centralize to understand how to work together in a somewhat uh, cohesive way and that you can uh, move forward from that. So for Emmanuel, this is a, enabling breaking down silos and starting from common ways of working. So is there, there is more of that cohesiveness around centralized data sharing. There are some concerns from the domains about how do they maintain control to ensure compliant usage when they're heading down this path. As the team learn how to put their data onto centralized infrastructure, Emmanuel shared that they are simultaneously working on how they will hand more control back to domains. EMD is in the initial stages of their data maturity journey, but they're mapping out how they plan to move forward with next steps. They're focused on giving data producers the visibility to how their data is used so the domain owners can feel comfortable with that usage. And Emmanuel gave a, a good insight to those starting their data mesh journey. Understanding the end-to-end -end data supply chain, you know, how is data used downstream? Where is it produced from? All of that. It's, it's really hard, especially when you are just establishing that supply chain, when you are really putting together that plumbing for uh, taking data from the producers and, and moving it over to the consumers. And on understanding that supply chain and how data is consumed downstream is very important, again, to giving the domains the visibility they need to feel comfortable sharing more and more of their data. Some are calling this kind of data on the threshold. 
data that might be data on the outside but isn't yet. Emmanuel and team are starting their data mesh journey by bringing a significant amount of data into a central data lake and then watching for data consumption patterns to emerge. Then when there is a use case that is kind of worthwhile that a lot of people are are really consuming from regularly, that use case will get promoted to being a data product and being worthy of, of a data product. Then the teams will work backwards to find the owner or owners of upstream information so they can ensure that upstream data production is actually managed like a product. Now, since data challenges aren't flagged to a centralized team, the data can actually be fixed where it should be fixed, upstream at the source systems. So it's it's pushing that uh, ownership left in a very natural type of way. Based on that approach of getting access to data outside of kind of formal data products, uh, Emmanuel mentioned how this could bring domains to the table sooner in a data mesh implementation. In his view, it is often quite expensive to get a domain on board and capable of sharing data like a product, not just kind of sharing some data. So if you require a specific data consumer driven use case or use cases before investing in that domain enough that they can actually get to that level to share data, it can mean you only look for very large return use cases or that that initial cost of bringing a domain onto sharing on the mesh falls disproportionately on your early data products. In Emmanuel's approach, he thinks that the initial cost of sharing is much lower and then use cases emerge to justify further work. So the domains share some information sooner. It might not be sharing it as a product, but that information sharing is a much lower bar and it's much lower cost. But it has the drawback of the domain not sharing their data intentionally upfront. So it might not have as much of the domain context. They might be shipping or sharing their data that as it matches to their underlying source systems, for example. Emmanuel mentioned that you can't centralize ownership of data quality and access and expect to scale. You really need to figure out how to distribute your data ownership appropriately and that you can't rely on a data engineer in every domain. So how do you lower the bar to getting to that level of sharing? Emmanuel's approach to the big picture is to set a target picture and a North Star, but adjust that expected target picture along the way. If you aren't flexible and aren't taking in new information and adjusting accordingly, are, are you really ready for the flexibility required to do something like data mesh? So how is EMD approaching their overall data strategy? Per Emmanuel, they started with a company-wide data strategy, again, setting that high-level target picture. Then they started to measure data maturity across each domain. They had to answer, should they move ahead with domains that are already at that high data maturity or try to level up the capabilities of less mature domains so those domains can participate in the kind of data sharing economy. They decided to focus on bringing all domains up to a certain maturity level. If you don't, it can mean issues scaling your approaches per Emmanuel. 
An example is that if one domain is doing ML ops with tens of ML models in production, and another domain is running everything off Excel and Access, or worse, PowerPoint, their needs may be completely different. The things you learn and ways of working that you get from the very data mature team just won't translate well to immature domains. So every domain will need specialized help. That just isn't scalable. We need to find those patterns of reuse. Emmanuel mentioned how data governance can often create mixed feelings. I know just saying that sometimes makes people shudder. Data governance. He said that good data governance is like brakes in your car. Brakes are there to allow you to go fast safely. They're not there specifically to slow you down. They're there to allow you to go fast safely. Governance is not about overseeing every bit of data usage, you know, kind of I'm watching everybody and and approving every single bit of, of usage. It's about speeding up access and usage of data. Governance should be an enabling factor in a best case scenario. And that is why federated governance can be so powerful. We give the control to the people most worried about data usage and give them the tooling and knowledge to own most of that governance. EMD created a general data literacy program, making everyone aware of and on the same page about definitions for a lot of core concepts around things like data, analytics, use cases, etc., making them all aware of the vocabulary and kind of understanding a, a, a centralized definition. This was just their first step, though, in their data literacy campaign. For Emmanuel, he has seen data literacy success come from programs that take people by the hand regarding data and make them use the systems, the workflows and the mechanisms, especially around governance. Hence, they created a 10-week program for focusing on using data. They're taking people out of the business, and for 10 weeks, they're focusing on just learning about how to use data and, and how their systems currently work. He said it is looking pretty successful in early days because it makes things so much more tangible for, for people. People can understand the entire flow of data through the system, and then they have a better idea of what they could do, both from the producing side and the consuming side, but especially the producing side. It, it's only just wrapping up its first cohort of people, but the attendees seemed pretty excited about what they, they really went through. In Emmanuel's view, People are naturally curious around data. The issue with using data has been lack of tools and access to data in domains. Sharing and leveraging data wasn't viewed as part of the typical job in most domains, and it wasn't part of most people's KPIs or reviews or anything like that. It is important to give them the right tools and the right incentives so people can and want to explore data and be curious. Pushing reports at people doesn't engage curiosity. Who is the new data and analytics world for? For Emmanuel, it's for the people who are already data curious, but aren't leveraging data nearly as much and or as scalably as they could be. We need to give them the tools to make working with data more scalable and shareable. Then data becomes a topic that is tangible for everyone in the business. Can we start replacing Excel and PowerPoint, but still make it simple for people to explore and, and leverage data? Per Emmanuel, part of moving towards scalable analytics requires us 
to unlock the one-off insight generation, make it so we can democratize those generated insights. There are too many instances of people generating good and useful insights that are just lost, only seen by that single person and or only seen that one time. How do we make it so there is an easy, happy path to sharing insights that are long-lived? One thought I had from this was data and information are, are very different. I've talked about this a lot. A lot of consumers can become information slash insight producers without being really data owners slash producers. But the current tooling is pretty bad for sharing insights. You know, do you just slap it in a dashboard? Like, how does that actually work? We kind of go into what could be a good way to, to really share that information. We need to enable better context sharing for data consumers. Insights need to be kind of what Joao Rosa had talked about in his episode. They need to be hyper objects, something that persists over time. That's a 4D kind of concept, right? It's, it's not just static in time. When asked about the initial ROI on data mesh at EMD and the, the big data literacy campaign to date, Emmanuel pointed to the main value that they've seen thus far has been giving people the capability and especially the encouragement to explore data. Exploration has allowed people to understand the organization and they found the most reused data and then focused their data work efforts on the places people are using the most data. That prevents time spent on data products that aren't valued by data consumers. So in wrapping up, a question Emmanuel thinks is important to ask is, how do you define a happy place for your org and for each domain? No journey to a happy place will look alike, and no happy place will look alike. What does a good state look like along that way, right? Are you headed in a good direction? You know, how, how are you adjusting your target picture? We don't need to be in a rush to get to the finish line. So I think you'll enjoy this episode. And there's a summation of kind of my thoughts and some good questions that will be kind of the bottom line up front for that episode. So I encourage you to check that part out as well. Extended episode summary for episode number 87, choosing tech for the now and future and potential woes of decentralizing data teams, an interview with Jesse Anderson. So in this episode, I interviewed Jesse Anderson, managing director at consulting company, Big Data Institute, host of the Data Dream Team podcast, and author of three books, most recently one called Data Teams. Jesse started the conversation on how important people are to getting things right with data, especially when making technology decisions. The chicken and egg question is, do you need to have the right people in place first, or do you want to make technology decisions that will attract people? In Jesse's view, you need the right people in place first, as they will be the ones to make the right decisions on technology selection. I think this makes sense, and there's nothing that's really sticking out to me about that. The most important question for Jesse when selecting technology is what are you trying to accomplish with that technology? If you don't focus on the target outcome, that is not going to work out well for you. And you should know, in general, what most of your use cases will be for the technology. 
Use that to assess what is the right solution to choose for you. This has been a recurring theme in many episodes. So much of technology selection ends up being about wanting to play with cool tools or or really, does this solve my one specific use case? Don't fall into that trap. Also for Jesse, quote unquote, technology must earn its keep. Just because you made a decision on using that technology at one point, it must continue to be of more value than its cost. And you want to strongly factor in your long-term total costs as best as you can estimate them, not just the licensing or the compute cost or things like that, but your maintenance cost. Are you going to have to have full-time people that are learning this? You know, how, how do you really think about kind of stewarding your tools? And you really need to think about that when looking to add a technology. And maybe the decision should be that you shouldn't add any technology to address that challenge and that you can leave that challenge unmet. This is important for build versus buy and really thinking about can you continue to keep something running? Is the long-term roadmap of what you're looking at a match to your goals and vision? This is another recurring theme in a lot of episodes. Total cost of ownership is rarely calculated in data. Don't be the person that forgets or forgoes that. Jesse also pointed to how different data is to the operational side relative to technology cycles. When you think about on the operational side, there's a number of technologies that are on year 30. So, but on the data side, you know, when Jesse is looking at kind of his, what he learned from being part of the Hadoop ecosystem, maybe 10 years or even less is realistic for how long data technologies might be around. Thinking in those cycles, you should think about where a technology is and and where it is headed when choosing. What is the chance of obsolescence? How healthy is the project? What, again, is that longer-term roadmap? You must have a longer-term vision more than just does it solve our today problems. Thoron Pratt in her episode number 68 mentioned a lot of the same points. You should consider how aggressive you will be in tech adoption, per Jesse. Will you be comfortable with making early bets on emerging technologies? How can you set yourself up to be able to migrate away once technology is no longer a great fit for you? Data Mesh can make it easier to wean off a technology as what you expose to data producers and data consumers is rarely the underlying tech. Instead, you usually expose an interface. I think microservices calls this an anti-corruption layer when you think about not becoming overly reliant on a specific technology. It's not a practice I've seen much on, on in the data world, but it's especially important when thinking about not becoming over-reliant on any one solution. Tech is there to serve a purpose, and that purpose might change or the tech might not keep up. Jesse talked about how right now, general software engineers, application engineers are not ready or able to create good data products in his view specifically. One big issue is a lack of understanding about schema changes. On the one hand, you can't tell software engineers they can't make schema changes because that blocks application development. But on the other, most software engineers do not understand the the downstream impact of those schema changes. They are also, per Jesse, not well-versed enough in how to store and share data about the domain to, one, maximize data reuse, and two, create data sets that will be useful for analytics. They know how to 
store the data so that it will be useful for the application, for the operational plane, but not for the analytical plane. I'm not sure about those last two points myself. I haven't really thought about that, but the schema changes slash migrations breaking downstream data is just about the most common repeated challenge I hear about. We need to give developers tools to understand the impact of their changes because developers need to make changes. The applications need to evolve. We just need to, to make it so they can actually understand what those changes are going to create or are going to cause. Aggregated domain ownership is one issue Jesse pointed to regarding decentralization of data teams. Who owns these products? Do they need to be products in and of themselves? Another aspect is something that's run through many conversations on the podcast. If we give domains the authority and the autonomy to do whatever they want, won't that cause chaos? And the thing is, if you just give people autonomy, the answer is probably. Uh, as Jessica Kerr mentioned in her episode, you want to give them the agency where if they are if they really feel the need to make a different decision than kind of what you're offering as the standard platform, that's okay, but you should offer kind of standard ways of doing things. So establishing best practices and giving people that common platform to use and, and reusable frameworks is necessary to make something like data mesh work. This challenge is popping up more and more in conversations for me. How do we handle repeated aggregation of data? Who owns it? I'm not really sure of, of what's a great answer here. Another issue with data team decentralization Jesse has is how to manage the career growth and happiness of data engineers. Many data engineers may not want to be embedded in the domains. And do they follow best practices of the organization? Or if the domain owner says, do something quickly and you know, kind of screw the best practices, who do they listen to? Daniel Engberg's episode, which was number 60, covered a lot of this pretty extensively. Jesse finished by saying all your data work should have a purpose. Every organization should ask if data mesh is truly worth it for them, both now and in the future. It's okay to say not now, and it's okay to say not ever. So to wrap up a few key takeaways that I, I got from Jesse's perspective, specifically from Jesse's perspective on choosing technology, you should make sure you have the right team in place to make good technology decisions, that team needs to be in place first. Second would be before selecting any technology, it's crucial to understand what you are trying to accomplish and to understand that the technology will provide help in addressing the challenge, but it won't solve anything in and of itself. Third, focus on, is this the right tool or solution for us now and in the future? What is the roadmap and vibrancy of the solution? Is that something we really want to hitch our wagon to? Fourth, technology must earn its keep, meaning you should understand the total cost of ownership and what is your expected return on that investment. You can get yourself into a lot of trouble by just choosing cool technologies or technologies that might solve only one problem, but that are very costly to maintain. Lastly, data tooling cycles are probably going to be 10 years at the most. Prepare for obsolescence of your data tools so you aren't overly reliant on any one technology or company. And some takeaways from Jesse's point of view on decentralizing data teams. 
Currently, software engineers aren't ready to be data product developers, so you'd need embedded data engineers to handle creating and maintaining data products in Data Mesh. This was uh, something that we had talked about in a community meetup as well, which you can find on the Data Mesh Learning Community YouTube. But for Jesse, a lot of data engineers are not really willing to be embedded into the domains. So can we really decentralize the team if the data engineers don't want to be in the domains? Second point is managing the dotted line versus the solid line of reporting between a functional team and the domain can be very, very difficult. Lastly, there are a number of cracks where crucial data can fall into and fail to find a good owner in a decentralized structure, especially aggregate data products. And that can be a big concern when those cross-domain use cases are a big driver of value.